we are moving through our series trying to get a picture of how God's story is unveiled in the scripture. Why do we need to know the story of God? Why is it important to us? Well, I think it's good for us to see that God's always had a plan. He has always wanted us to see that his plan is good. And in his plan, he has always had a people. And his plan is that he might bless those people so that they could be a blessing. That's why he blesses us, in case you didn't know that. He doesn't bless you just so you can sit around and be blessed, right? He blesses you to make you a blessing. Maybe you need to repeat that with me. He blesses me. Make it, make it personal. He blesses me to make me a blessing. That's how he works. As the old preacher said, God would love to give it to you if he can get it through you, all right? Because he doesn't just want to give it to you. He wants it to move through you to bless others. But as we see the blessing of God unfolding, we know that Jesus really is the thread that ties it all together. So we've been looking back over these last few weeks. We've been looking back even to see how it started. The story of Genesis is the story of beginnings. The word Genesis meaning the beginning. And in the beginning, God the scripture says that God spoke and the world came into being. And when God created us, male and female, he created us in the image of God. Now, we know that image wasn't lost in the fall, but it was marred. And the, the way that sin impacted the human race is that, first of all, you remember that Adam and Eve ran and hid and then you remember that they tried to cover their own sin with fig leaves. <clears throat> Most comedians in cartoons can get that part right. But then we don't always understand why God rejected that covering. It wasn't because fig leaves weren't good enough. Even then, God was giving a, a lesson for us to learn that we can't cover our own sin. That we need a covering that He provides and in his provision of a covering, you remember that there was the shedding of blood, the killing of an animal, that they might be covered that way. Even there, a picture of how Jesus is the thread that holds it all together. And you remember how then God announced the promise there in the garden that he was going to send, born the seed of a woman, one that would stand on Satan's head. Though his heel would be bruised, he would conquer Satan, the serpent. Well, we fast-forwarded a little bit because we knew we couldn't get the whole story of God every single page in this amount of time of teaching. What did we skip? Did, did you notice? We skipped Noah. I mean, how could you skip Noah? <clears throat> uh, we skipped the Tower of Babel. How could you, how could you do that? Even in Noah, a picture of, of being saved in the ark as we're saved in Christ. And the Tower of Babel, as man in his pride tries to say that he can be God, God dispersed them through languages. And the picture then is going to come back to Jesus in the Pentecost and at the, the final scene in Revelation when every tribe, tongue, and nation is brought back to Jesus to worship. 
but we didn't have time to preach that. So we, we skipped over to Abraham. And we took a couple of weeks with Father Abraham to try to lay the foundation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this morning, as we come to the next chapter, uh, the next act, if you will, in the story of God, <clears throat> if we could have a trailer, and the trailer would, you remember the, how the trailer in the movie <clears throat> always shows you the best scenes. I mean, sometimes you watch it, you think this is going to be hilarious, and what you just watched was the best joke in the whole movie, all right? <clears throat> and, then it, and then you see something, you say, man, this is going to be intense, and what you just saw was the only chase scene in the whole movie. Well, this morning, if we had a trailer that made questions come out, the questions would be like this, why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why those three? Why, what did God say to Abraham about Egypt? And how in the world did the people of God get to Egypt? I, I just want to pause. I, I, I wanted so much to figure out a way to, to make this interactive and to make sure you really are getting this. Think about it. Genesis ends in Egypt. Exodus begins in Egypt. How did they get to Egypt? And what did God say to Abraham about them going to Egypt? Well, man, I'm really glad you asked because that's really how we need to see this story coming together. First, let's, let's deal with the question, why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why these three? Why did we have to summarize the story of God by listing these three guys. Well, just in case you wonder that we falsely put the little train with three cars on it, let's go to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts chapter 3, I used to say I'm going to wait till I hear the pages turning. I'm, now I'm just going to give you time to click and get there, all right? <clears throat> So if you're dialing it up, we're in Acts chapter, that's the New Testament if you don't know that, all right? We're in Acts chapter 3, and we've already seen Christ raised from the dead. We've already seen the day of Pentecost, and, and now we see the church in action. And as Peter and John are on their way to the temple, they come across a guy that's been lame from birth. And they, they look to him, and thinking that he was going to give them money. And you remember the famous line of what Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have, I'm going to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Well, the guy was healed. And when he started walking, people said, what in the world was this? So a crowd gathered. And that was why God allowed that miracle to happen when it did, the way it did. So the crowd would gather. And when Peter starts to explain how this guy was healed, I just want you to notice I wish we had time to unpack the whole thing, but I want you to notice verse 13 of Acts chapter 3. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was decided to release him. So here's the point. When Peter starts to preach explaining the story of God pointing to Jesus, 
He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why did he say that? Why was it important that those three be named together? Are these the three best people in the Old Testament? No. If you go to Hebrews 11 again, you'll find in Hebrews 11 why that was, I believe this gives you the best clue of why it was answered that way. In Hebrews chapter 11, you recall the hall of faith as it walked through by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham. And then you come in Hebrews 11 to verse 9. By faith he, Abraham. I wanted to make sure you had the antecedent of that personal pronoun so you know who we're talking about. By faith he, Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise. That's your clue. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been given the same covenant promise. What was that promise? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And through your seed, all the peoples will be blessed. Paul picks up on this in the book of Galatians and explains it. He says, notice he didn't say, and to your seeds, plural, but to your seed, that is Christ. God made the promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would be sending his son through their lineage. So that's the answer to the first question. Why these three? Why are they all in this together? Well, what's the answer to the next question? If the next question is, then what did God say to Abraham about Egypt anyway? Go back in the book of Genesis. This is a really cool and a really important verse for you to see in its chronology. In Genesis chapter 15... Now, let me just remind you, this is before Isaac is born. This is before the son of promise is born. In Genesis chapter 15, God came to Abram, verse 13, and said, Know this for certain, your offspring will be strangers in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. We know that prophets prophesy. <laughs> Here we have God telling Abraham, your family is going to live in another land and they're going to be slaves there oppressed for 400 years. How long were the children of Israel in Egypt? You want to guess? That's right. What did they do while they were there? You want to guess? They were slaves. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many 
possessions. God told Abraham that the Jews would be going to Egypt. Which leads us to the next question of the morning. Why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Did you get it? They were all for the same promise, right? What did God say to Abraham about Egypt? You're going to go there and you're going to live 400 years there. How did they get to Egypt? How did the children of Israel even get there? In a simple word, the answer is Joseph. That's how they got there. Do you remember the story of Joseph? What do you remember about that story that you may have learned in Sunday school? Do you remember what kind of guy he was? And do you remember how he wound up in Egypt himself? Go to Genesis chapter 37 and we'll meet Joseph together. In Genesis 37... Jacob lived in a land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And these are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended the sheep with his brothers. Then it says in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons. Now, I didn't want to have to go there, but I need to explain to you. Israel equals Jacob, okay? When Jacob climbed the famous ladder that they wrote a song about, okay? He wrestled with God, and in his wrestling with God, Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Now, he goes back and forth interchangeably in different places in the Scripture, but that's how you need to see verse 3, that Israel loved Joseph more than all the others. Now, let's talk about it for a moment. Why Joseph? Well, when he was born, possibly, but the mother that he was born to, possibly. But what do we know about Joseph in his early years? He was a dreamer, right? And his dreams did not sit well with his brothers. Do you remember his dreams? One of his dreams were where there were these sheaves. And my sheave stood up and your sheaves bowed down to me. Now how would that be in a family meeting when one kid tells that to the others? Right? They all got mad and said, so you mean we're going to bow down to you? We already didn't like you because dad likes you best, you know. And and now you're telling us that that we got to be your servants? Well, to make it worse, uh, he had another dream. And in his next dream, according to Genesis 37, verse 9, look, he had another dream. He told his brothers, I had a dream, and this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, some have tried to say that he was an arrogant kid, 
All right? Personally, I don't see that. I think he's just trying to explain to them, help me figure this out, guys. Well, his father heard about the dream, and his father said, so are you telling us that your mother and me and your mother and brothers are going to all bow down to you? The brothers kept hating him more. But it's interesting, it says, but his father kept this matter in the back of his mind. Now, dad liked Joseph so much that he made him a special coat, a coat of many colors. And even when he wore it, it made the other brothers mad because dad didn't make them a coat of many colors. And one day when the guys had gone away with the animals to find new pasture, dad looked at Joseph and he said, I think it's time for you to go check on your brothers. So Joseph went, and as he went to check on them, they were not where he thought, and he was told they're going to be in Dothan. Now, for those of you who are not really Bible students, this is not Alabama, okay? They named that later after this place, all right? He went to Dothan, and when he arrived his brothers saw him coming with his coat of many colors and and they were still so mad at them and they said in verse 19 here comes that dreamer let's kill him and throw him into one of these pits and we can say that a vicious animal ate him then we'll see what becomes of all of his dreams now his brother Reuben and that's not a sandwich. That happened later too, all right? His bro- Come on, you guys are a hard crowd here, all right? His brother Reuben heard what they were about to do. And he said, come on, guys, don't shed his blood. Just throw him into one of these pits. He'd hoped to slip back later and rescue him. But somehow when Reuben was off with his sheep... It says that they looked up, the rest of the brothers, and they saw the Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels, verse 25, were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, resin, and they were going down to Egypt. So they came up with this idea. Rather than kill him, why don't we sell him? So they sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. I kind of remember another story about someone being sold for a certain amount of silver. Anyway, we'll, we'll get to that later, all right? So they sold Joseph, and he made his way to Egypt. Now, what happened after he got to Egypt? Well, first, the brothers took his coat They killed an animal. They cut up his coat in pieces. They put blood all over it. And they sent it back to their dad and said, Look at this. Does this look like Joseph's coat to you? And the dad said, Obviously an animal ate him. And he grieved deeply at the loss of his son. The guys knew 
that he had not been killed by an animal. But they dare not tell their dad the truth. So Joseph gets to Egypt. What happens when he gets to Egypt? He starts working for a guy named Potiphar, the one who bought him as a slave. Now, Potiphar was the guy in charge of Pharaoh's stuff, all right? And Joseph, in his helping Potiphar, became so reliable. That's a key point. He could have been so mad at his brothers. He could have fought kicking and screaming. But instead, he decided to have a good attitude, and he served Potiphar. <laughs> that good attitude reminds me, uh, um, one night after church, we were at some friend's house, and I was really tired. I was laying on the sofa, and the little girl comes walking over to me and says, Patho, that's the best way she could say pastor, all right, Patho. I have a bad attitude. Mommy told me I had to go to my room. A little while later, she came walking back up, and she said, Pato, I have a good attitude now. Mommy said I could come back and play. Well, Joseph did not have a bad attitude, all right? Joseph had an incredible attitude, and Potiphar put him in charge of all of his stuff. And one day he was working at Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife saw him and said, he is such an attractive, handsome young man. I think I'll take him into my bedroom. And when she enticed him to come into her bedroom, he ran. Which, by the way, guys, Paul gave very good counsel when he said, flee. There's a time to fight. There's a time to run. There's also a lot of wisdom about a man never being alone with a woman. In case you wonder, it is our staff policy, it is our staff leadership policy that we will not have a man alone with a woman who is not his wife. It's just good practice. I'm not saying Joseph was foolish, but I am saying he found him in a place undefensible he ran and when the accusation was made against him there was corroborating evidence I know some of you watched the news this week and I would never go and get myself into that murky uh, debate all right in this case she had the coat to say see he was here this boy's coats keep getting him in trouble, all right? She had the coat to say he was here, and Potiphar was embarrassed, even though I think he probably believed Joseph's side of the story. He was embarrassed, and he had to throw him into jail. Once again, though, Joseph had a good attitude. He started serving, and in his serving, he became in charge of the jail. This guy is so amazing to me. Everywhere he goes, he goes in with nothing and he comes out in charge. While he was there, he met a couple of guys that had been thrown into jail. There was a 
cupbearer. You know what a cupbearer is, right? It's not just that he carries a cup. He stands by the king and he tastes the wine first. And if he lives, okay, the king drinks it. If he dies, they roll him off and get another one, right? So he's a, he's a trusted guy that tastes the king's food, right? So his cupbearer that had somehow they'd gotten mad at and thrown in jail. And there was a baker. Both of these guys had dreams. And when they had their dreams, Joseph, the dreamer, knew how to interpret their dreams. And the scripture says that when they had their dreams, Joseph, in chapter 40, told them the meaning of their dreams. There were three baskets and there were three branches. When Joseph interpreted the dream for the baker, he said, in three days, you're going to die. When he interpreted the dream for the cupbearer, he said, in three days, you're going to get your job back. His dreams keep getting him in trouble. Uh, the baker didn't like it because he was going to die. The, the cupbearer said, okay then, let's see what happens in three days. And he got his job back. But he forgot Joseph. He didn't remember to do a favor for his buddy who interpreted his dream. Until one day when Pharaoh had a dream. Pharaoh had a dream and he could not figure out what it meant. In chapter 41 of the book of Genesis, as he's trying to figure out what his dream means, <clears throat> he keeps calling people and nobody can interpret it for him. And then it hits the cupbearer. Hey, I met this guy when I was in prison. And we told him our dreams, and he interpreted my dream correctly. And so they called Joseph and told him to come meet with Pharaoh. I kind of like what verse 14 says of Genesis 41. <clears throat> Pharaoh sent for Joseph, quickly brought him up out of the dungeon. So he shaved and changed clothes and went to Pharaoh. All right. <clears throat> he, he took a bath. He shaved, got some clean clothes, and he went to see Pharaoh. And he told Pharaoh, he said, look, here's what your dream means. The seven well-fed cows and the seven, seven ugly, sickly cows are a dream about what's going to happen. For seven years, there's going to be abundance in the land. And then for seven years, there's going to be famine in the land. And if you're going to get this dream right, Pharaoh, you need to save everything you can during these seven years of abundance. Because the seven years of famine are coming. And Pharaoh said, wow. Wow. I can't believe that God has given you that interpretation. And since everyone else was not able to interpret it, and you got it right, 
you're in charge. You figure out how to do all that saving. And so when the time comes, when there's famine, we'll have everything we need. Now, I think we ought to stop right there for just a moment and make some application. First, if we will take the long view, we will believe that God is at work if we've been thrown in the pit, if we have been sent to jail, if it looks like there's no way out, take the long view. And remember, like you sang this morning, God's still at work. God, God really is in charge. Is that where you are today? Are you in a pit? Are you feel like you're trapped? Do you feel like there's no way out? The story of Joseph should remind you that God is still at work. But here's the second application. Like Joseph, we need to be faithful wherever God has put us. Because at least in this season of time, if we can't get out of it, then we need to do the best we can with it. Believing that God can move me when he's ready. How many times have I had to say to God, God, I don't like it. I don't want it. I'm looking every time I can for a way out. But until you show me one, I need to be faithful where you put me. And here's the last part of that application. My attitude really does matter. Joseph's confidence came through so clearly that that was the very thing that God used to open the next door for him. I would plead with you this morning before we even show you how the story ends. At this point of application in your life, God is at work where you are. His plans for you are good. His intent for you is to demonstrate his power in your life and quite candidly, most of the time, that's through bad stuff. We think that when we trust Jesus, it's all good stuff. And that's misrepresenting the gospel. It is ultimately perfectly good. But it's through the tough times that people get a chance to see that Jesus is real in our lives. Now that's where you can say an amen or an oh me. All right, that's how this works. With, with Joseph, we see those things. But remember, there was another question. And the other question was, how did they get to Egypt? Do you remember the rest of the story? Joseph's in charge. <clears throat> Seven years, they've saved the stuff, put a tax everywhere, made everybody save 
throughout the land. And now the famine comes. And as the famine comes, word gets back to Joseph's family. They've got some food down in Egypt. Let's go down there and see if we can get some. It's an incredible story. You can read it for yourself. The brothers go. Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. And then through a series of events, they send back and they bring the father and they come. And now they're all there. And finally, Joseph says, hey, guys, look, it's me, the guy you threw in the pit, the guy you sold into slavery. I'm the one in charge here. Now, as you can imagine, the brothers went, "Uh uh-oh, what's going to happen now? But Joseph, as they come and bow down before him, says to them two verses that if I didn't have a third one to show you, I would say are the most important parts of this story. Genesis 45, verse 5. Joseph says to them, Don't be grieved. Or angry with yourselves for selling me here. God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. Now I have to say, I, I am reminded of Jesus hanging on a cross. Saying, Father, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. Genesis 50, verse 20, I used to think was the most important verse of the story. You planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What you intended for evil, God was using for good. Some of you today have people in your life and you think, they have caused me so much pain and so much evil. I am not in any way justifying their sin or debating against your perspective on it, but I am saying this. I still believe that all things are working together for good to those who love the Lord that have been called according to his purpose. Don't fight in your flesh. Your flesh will never accomplish the purposes of God. Receive in his spirit the grace that you need for the task so that you can still say what someone else intended for evil, God continued to use for good. Now that sounds like the very best verse of the whole story. But remember, we're not just asking why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, why, what did God say about it to Abraham about going to Egypt, and how did they get to Egypt? You remember how they got there, right? They got there because of Joseph. Joseph went to Egypt, so the Jews went to Egypt. But how does Jesus tie this all together? It comes in a place that you probably have skipped many times Because it's in one of those lists, okay? 
and, and when you're trying to read through your Bible and discipline yourself to do the Bible reading of the day, you see this guy's name and this, and this guy's name and this, and this guy's name and this, and you kind of get lost in it all. But the scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 49 that Jacob has called together the boys and he is praying blessing over them. It begins in verse 1. Jacob called his sons, gather around, and I'll tell you what's going to happen to you in the days to come. So dad begins to go one by one over the 12 sons and to speak blessing to them. And then you come to verse 8. Listen to what dad says. Read it on the screen. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the necks of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. (laughs) That's setting him up to brothers to feel kind of like they did to Joseph, right? But then he says, Judah is a young lion. My son, you return from the kill. He crouches. He lies down. Like a lion or a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Judah, a lion. But then the next verse. The scepter will not depart from Jacob. Scepter, king, scepter. It will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is, comes. Can we just pause right there? That's Jesus. Just like Abraham was told all those years before about what would happen in 400 years of bondage in Egypt, God is now speaking through Jacob As he speaks the blessing over Judah, calling him the Lion of Judah. And he says, the scepter will not pass until the one who really deserves it comes. And the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. The story of God pointing to Jesus. Will you go with me now to Revelation chapter 5 and look back on the story? In Revelation 5, John is around the throne and he says there's no one worthy to take the scroll and break its seals. But he's told there is one worthy What's he called? The Lion of Judah. That's what he's called. Verse 5, stop crying. Look, the Lion from the tribe of Judah. Who is this Lion of of Judah. John looks to the throne 
And what does he see? Verse 6. I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders. And then they said to the lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll, verse 9, and open its seals because you were slain and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. I want to say, Todu, all right? Jesus is the thread that ties it all together. And when he spoke prophecy over Judah as the lion, he looked to the lion of Judah and we saw the very lamb of God. You had no clue this morning, maybe, when you sang it. The lion and the lamb. So I want to ask you to bow your heads. And I want you to think for a moment about this majestic one who is the king of kings, who is the Lord of lords, who is the one who deserves to be praised. I want you to think about this one who really is in charge, who really is the overcoming power, who overcame sin and death and hell for you. I want you to think about this one who loved you and came after you and said to you, give me your sin. I will give you my forgiveness. Give me your broken heart. And I will give you a plan for good. Maybe you don't like the pit you're in or the jail where you've wound up. And the only way you can keep your attitude right is to believe. God really is in charge and he really is working for my good and his glory.